Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. All right. Um, So if you all would go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 12. Um, In case you didn't know, next Sunday is Easter. Um, I'm pretty sure all the school teachers in here know this because... Many of us are counting down the days until spring break. Um, <laughs> but with Easter being next week, that means that today is Palm Sunday. So today we're going to look at how John records Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, what you'll notice in this passage is that there are basically three different groups listed. Uh, there's a crowd that gets caught up in the excitement, and then there's um, Jesus' followers, and then you have the Pharisees. Each of these three groups have different expectations about Jesus and what he's going to do. Uh, So like I said, today we're going to be in John chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 19. So John 12, 12 to 19. And the title of this is Palm Sunday. But the main idea of this passage is that Jesus exceeds your expectations. Again, the main idea, Jesus exceeds your expectations. Um, I have it broken down. Um, I mentioned those three groups, and so those are kind of my three divisions that I have. The first group has these revolutionary expectations for Jesus. The second group has some ministerial expectations for Jesus. And then the third group has some pretty negative expectations. So I'm going to pray and we'll go ahead and dig into this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you will open up our hearts. Touch us, Lord, with your truth and touch us with your love. Father, I pray that you will help us to be more like you through this In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so John 12, starting with verses 12 and 13. It says, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And so John starts off by saying, the next day. So it's a good reminder for us to always look, uh, that we always want to keep the context in mind. We want to know what happened in the day prior to this. John says the next day, well, that implies something was happening the day before that. To really understand that, we actually have to go back further than that. Um, So Jesus had been teaching and healing for about three years. uh, And at this point, most people in Israel had heard about Jesus. And there was a large crowd that would follow him wherever he went because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But that didn't mean the same thing to everybody that was, uh, to every, every person that was in that group. There were several different expectations that they had for the Messiah. Um, two of Jesus' closest friends were Mary and Martha. Their brother Lazarus got sick, and they sent a message to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, and they wanted Jesus to come to heal Lazarus right away. But he didn't go right away, and since Jesus didn't go right away, Lazarus died. But in fact, Jesus already had a plan. So Jesus went, after, after Lazarus died, Jesus went and um, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and his, his crowd of followers grew. Now, at the same time, his crowd of enemies were growing as well. And they grew angrier and angrier. The Pharisees were now putting together a plan to kill Jesus uh, and so that this messianic fervor that was growing could be squashed. And at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus returns to Bethany to spend some time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, A larger crowd was starting to form because many um, had heard that this Jesus, who healed Lazarus, was back in town. Now, Bethany is just 
you know, a short walk from Jerusalem. So a lot of the people there in Jerusalem had heard that Jesus was there in Bethany, and so they went to see him. But, and so that's where the story picks up as the next day, all right? Uh, and it says, the next day, when a large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. There's a detail in here that I had never noticed before. These people were already in Jerusalem. They were already at the festival. When they heard that Jesus was coming, they left the festival to go and make preparations for Jesus to come into the festival and to escort him in. I'd always assumed that the people were coming with Jesus. There, it was this crowd that was already following him. They were already in Bethany with Jesus, and they were just following him over. But this crowd was in the city already. They were already in, Israel, or in Jerusalem, already celebrating the festival, and they left to go escort Jesus in. But they didn't just escort him. They took palm branches. Now, John doesn't really tell us what they did with the palm branches, but Matthew does tell us. He tells us that the people were laying down palm branches in the road to make a clean path for Jesus. Not only were they putting down the palm branches, but they were also taking off their cloaks and putting them on the ground so that Jesus could come uh, on top of that. Um, they were giving Jesus a royal welcome, which hints, uh, which hints at why they were doing this. And look at what they say. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now let's break this down, starting with Hosanna. This word was originally a Hebrew word that meant help us or save us. In crying out Hosanna to Jesus, they were looking in the right place for salvation because he is the only one who can save us from our sins. When we add that to the next phrase, it becomes a paraphrase of Psalm 118, 25 to 26. So Psalm 118, 25 to 26 says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. Well, there's that Hosanna, right? Lord, save us, grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed, right? So we see that Hosanna in there, uh, right? The save us, please grant us success could be translated as Hosanna, Hosanna. The rest of it is pretty much the same phrase, but the clauses are reversed, right? So there's one part of this though, of the crowd there, there's one part of what they're saying that's a new addition, and that is the king of Israel. That last phrase was not in the psalm that we just read. Don't miss the significance here. These people are calling Jesus the king of Israel. Hosanna, Lord help us, Lord save us. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed, the king of Israel. They're calling Jesus the King of Israel. They do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but many of them are expecting a political and military ruler. Right? These people are calling him the King of Israel, blessing him and asking him to save them from the Romans. They expected Jesus to ride into town and begin a revolution fighting for Israel's independence. They missed the point, though. Right? Jesus was not coming the first time to establish his kingdom. If he did, none of us, nobody, not a single human would be in there with him. None of us deserve to be in Jesus' kingdom because of our sin. Jesus came the first time to pay the penalty for our sin. He came as the sacrificial lamb to take away our guilt. And next week, we'll look at Jesus' resurrection, where he conquered death and proved his deity. He was, uh, then, afterwards, he was ascended into heaven, where he is awaiting his return. We get to see that return in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. Notice the parallelism between Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and Revelation 7, 9, and 10. 
So I'm going to pick up Revelation 7, verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they crowd, and sorry, they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. So this um, triumphal entry, Jesus into Jerusalem, is meant to be a foreshadowing of Jesus's kingdom that we see in Revelation 7. See, these people read the Old Testament prophecies, and they were expecting Jesus to be a political and military leader who would defeat the Romans, much like Joshua or David in the Old Testament. So they didn't see Jesus's entry as the foreshadowing that it really was. Rather, they were expecting Jesus to come and set up his physical kingdom of God right then and there. But let's keep reading and see how this foreshadowing plays out. Picking up in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Matthew gives us more detail on just how Jesus found this young donkey. It's not an, accident, an accidental finding, but it was intentional. Right? Jesus knew, at least somewhat, what his entry was signifying. We know this because he sent two of his disciples into town before him uh, to find this young donkey. Come to think of it, this might be how the people in the city knew that Jesus was coming. Right? They're in the city. They're celebrating the festival. How would they know that Jesus is coming except that Jesus sent two of his disciples into town looking for a donkey so that Jesus could come in? Right? So Jesus did this purposefully so that the prophecy listed in verse 15 could be fulfilled. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This prophecy comes from Zechariah chapter 9. To get a better understanding, though, we should read a little bit more of what's being said. So, Zechariah 9, starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominant will extend from his his dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. See, this prophecy continues, and it talks about the salvation of the Jews from all of their enemies. It and it finishes with a picture of peace. But there's also before that peace happens, there's another picture that gets painted in verse 13 that I think bears a second look. So Zechariah 9 verse 13 says, "For I will bend Judah as my bow; I will fill that bow with Ephraim." I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece. This verse paints a picture of God using the Israelites as his weapon against the sons of Greece. For those praising Jesus as he came into the city, they might have had this prophecy in the back of their minds. Even though Greece wasn't ruling over Israel now, the Roman Empire was born out of the philosophy and influence of the Hellenistic period, which saw extensive Greek colonization. So the sons of Greece in Zechariah that he's talking about, could have been interpreted as the Roman Empire. But that might be a little bit of a stretch to say that they were thinking of verse 13 when we consider John tells us, or when we consider what John tells us about the prophecy in verse 9. Uh, 9, 16, sorry, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So his disciples did not understand these things. I know that, that I've made some pretty cool connections to what Jesus was doing with Zechariah's prophecy 
And it would be real easy to, to wag my finger at Jesus' disciples and say, you should have known this. You should have seen this. But we have to remember, right? I've got a little bit of an advantage in that it's, there's 2,000 years of Christian uh, scholars and, 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 and just believers pouring over the scriptures. And, and I get to learn from their wisdom. It's not my wisdom that I was able to find Zechariah's prophecy here. Somebody else had pointed that out. The disciples didn't have that. Plus, they're caught up in the moment there and all the excitement of what's going on. They didn't really have time to sit back and think deeply about it. You know, we, we have said that the, the, the average first century Jew would have had a much better understanding of the Old Testament than your average 21st century American Christian. The truth is that John had already pointed us in the right direction to find this passage. Like I said, I get the benefit of a couple thousand years worth of people trying to find these connections. So the disciples, I don't think we should wag our fingers at them and, and tell them that they were too stupid to see it. No, they were there. They were following Jesus. They did eventually remember these prophecies when Jesus was glorified. See, this refers to Jesus' ascension into heaven. After Jesus was crucified, as a substitute for our sin, for our guilt, he was resurrected. He was raised from the dead, proving his deity, his purity, and his power. After he was resurrected, he spent about 40 days teaching and performing other signs. Many people saw him. Actually, that's one of the strongest arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples report that over 500 people saw Jesus, and some of them are named. Most of these writings came out while the purported witnesses were still alive. If the disciples were lying about this, then it would have been really easy for people who you know, were debating about this to go to these people who were named as witnesses and check with them. And they could say, well, no, I didn't see. But if you have 500 people named as witnesses of Jesus after his resurrection, that's pretty strong evidence that he actually was resurrected. That's all beside the point, though. So um, after about 40 days after Jesus was resurrected, he descends into heaven while his disciples watch. And it was after that moment that the disciples were able to fully grasp how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. But this goes to show us that even though they were his closest friends, they were the ones that were closest to Jesus, their expectations about what he was about to do, their expectations were wrong as well. They didn't expect him to go to his death, though Thomas did show some fear about it going um, back in chapter 11, verse 16. Overall, Jesus' disciples expected him to continue his ministry of teaching and healing. They expected that he would bring the kingdom of God to this earth during his ministry at that time. Jesus will establish God's perfect eternal kingdom, but that is when he returns, as highlighted in that passage we read from Revelation earlier. All right, so continuing this passage, um, in, uh, picking up in verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. When the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So after this crowd saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they're, they're continuing to tell others about the miracles that they've seen Jesus do. This testimony is causing uh, others to join the group of Jesus' followers. As the group grows, so does their expectations about Jesus. As the group grows, so do the, the number of expectations of Jesus, the differing expectations that Jesus has. But it seems clear that these people were looking to make Jesus their king, or at least the king of their nation. But the following pages show that many of them did not make Jesus the king of their hearts. Either way, the group of Jesus' 
followers and possible revolutionaries is growing. Now, there's another group that, is, that has something growing. That's the Pharisees. They're growing impatient with their own ability to squash these stories about Jesus and, and the hopes that he brings. They're growing angry that Jesus has such a great following. They're growing fearful that Rome might hear these rumors of rebellion and bring in a mighty force to oust the leaders and put an end to the rebellion and establish a pro-Rome government. They would fear this because they would lose their precious power and influence. It would be these Pharisees that would lead the charge against Jesus to have him crucified. They acted this way because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were so caught up in their religiosity that they failed to see the one true God standing right before them. Since they, believed to believe, since they refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they expected that he would fail this revolution. They thought this false Messiah would be just like all the other false messiahs, all the other wackos that came before him claiming to be the Messiah. They expected that the crowds would follow him and get all excited, and then they would fail just like the rest. But this Jesus was worse than the other false messiahs because he continually condemned the Pharisees specifically, and he exposed their hypocrisy. The revolutionaries expected a military leader who would become king. The disciples expected a rabbi who would continue teaching. The Pharisees expected a fraud. All of them fell short of the real Jesus, or were just plain wrong. None of them had the correct expectation for what was about to happen. What was really about to happen was far more amazing than any of that. Jesus, God in the flesh, perfect, righteous, and just creator of the universe and ruler of heaven would be crucified for our salvation, raised for our justification, and ascended into heaven to prepare uh, his kingdom. The real Jesus is much greater than your expectations. You cannot imagine how wonderful he is or how great his grace is. And outside of faith, you cannot. So our application for this passage. Remember, our application always comes from our definition of a disciple and our three indicators of a disciple, and that's knowing, being, and doing. So first, know. It's to know that Jesus exceeds your expectations. We read about three different groups here and their expectations about Jesus' next moves. Your expectations might be the same as theirs, or it's probably different from theirs. But I can promise you that no matter what your expectations, the real Jesus is even better. Even if you've been a disciple for years, like the 12 apostles, your understanding and expectations of Jesus are still limited. One day, either when we go to heaven or when Jesus returns and establishes his eternal kingdom, then we will truly understand how great he is. So our B application is to be prepared for his return. See, the people in Jerusalem that day, they made quick preparations for Jesus' entrance into the city. They ran out, they cut branches off the palm trees, and threw them and their coats on the road to make a path for Jesus to ride in on. However, the right way to prepare for Jesus' return is to surrender to him. Whether you're surrendering for the first time, or if you've been a disciple for years and must continually surrender, Jesus is preparing his kingdom, and he will be returning. When he does, those who are surrendered to him will be called to join him in eternity. Those who have not will be sent to an eternity separated from him, paying for our sins. And the due application is to tell others about his return. And see, the reason that people in Jerusalem knew that Jesus was coming was that somebody had told them. When they heard of his approach, they excitedly welcomed him. When Jesus returns, how many people will be excited, excited when he does? A, bit of, uh, a big part of this 
falls on us. Before Jesus ascended, he told his followers to make disciples of all the nations. So let us now be obedient to that calling. Before Jesus ascended, he told us to go and make disciples of all nations. Like those in the city who told others about Jesus before his approach, let us go and tell others about his return. So our three application points is to know that Jesus exceeds your expectations, be prepared for his return, and to tell others about it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truth that this passage shows us. Lord, I pray that, that you will prune any of these false expectations from our hearts and open our hearts so that we can know the real you more. Lord, help us to understand the plan that you have to grow your kingdom here, Lord. Father, I pray that you will help us to be prepared for when you do return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash vbchopemills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.